This program is a production of the Reformed Forum, an organization devoted to producing and distributing Reformed theological content for a connected age. Online at reformedforum.org. This is Christ the Center, episode number 289. Today we speak with Scott Oliphant about covenantal apologetics. Welcome to Christ the Center, Doctrine for Life, your weekly conversation of Reformed theology. This is episode number 289. My name is Camden Busey. I'm the pastor of Hope Orthodox Presbyterian Church in Grays Lake, Illinois. We have two great guys with me today and a great episode lined up for you. Uh, we have with us first one of our regulars, David Owen Filson, who is a teaching pastor at Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee. He's also a Ph.D. candidate in Historical and Theological Studies at Westminster Theological Seminary in Philadelphia. Welcome back to the program, David. It's great to have you again. Thanks. It's good to be here. We also have with us our distinguished guest, uh, Dr. Scott Oliphant, who is Professor of Apologetics and Systematic Theology at Westminster Theological Seminary. Welcome back to the program, Dr. Oliphant. It's great to talk to you again. Distinguished greetings to both yes. of them. <laughs> well, today we're going to be speaking about apologetics, uh, so you are in for a treat uh, as we are bringing to you, the listener, uh, an interview here on the new book, Covenantal Apologetics, Principles and Practice in Defense of Our Faith, which is published by Crossway, brand new book, uh, hot off the press. I actually don't have my hard copy yet, I have a PDF I'm working on. Uh, so we're really excited to be bringing this to you, and we're going to be talking about the subject of covenantal apologetics, or as many of you may be familiar uh, with the title, presuppositional apologetics. But we'll get into that, into that distinction, and uh, into that name change that Dr. Oliphant is presenting in a minute. But before we do so, I do need to mention that Christ the Center is listener-supported. We do rely on the generous support of all of our listeners to help us to produce and distribute all of our programs free of charge. We love doing what we do, uh, but we have uh, needs, and we encourage you to visit us online at reformedforum.org slash donate to pledge your support today. We want to thank everybody for their support of everything we do at Reformed Forum and this particular program, Christ the Center. Well, we couldn't wait to get into this topic. Uh, it's been a long time coming, this particular book, but there's a lot of uh, apologetic resources out there. Dr. Oliphant, of course, has written several books on the subject, including The Battle Belongs to the Lord, which is probably more in line with uh, the the tenor of this particular book than his other, Reasons for Faith. But yet, uh, both very significant works, and uh, there's plenty of other works on presuppositional apologetics as well. Uh, but I do need to provide a little bit of a background, because this interview is a timely one. Dr. Oliphant recently appeared on the program Unbelievable uh, with Justin Brierley and, and uh, had a little bit of an exchange with... Uh, and a gentleman named Kurt Jaros uh, from the website Real Clear Apologetics, and they discussed uh, some of the basics uh, of presuppositional apologetics and how that interfaces with the role and use of evidences. Uh, last episode of Christ the Center, we got into a little bit about the nature and use of evidences ourselves, and so today we want to follow up uh, with an actual discussion of this brand new book. So we're I'm glad that uh, this has worked out just uh, right in terms of timing, and we're going to open this up today. Dave, I'll pass things to you uh, initially just to let you uh, discuss a little bit about uh, Van Til and uh, this book and the importance of a book like this. 
Well, I think the importance of a book like this um, can hardly be understated uh, or overstated, rather. I think uh, given the fact that for most folks who think about apologetics, we tend to th- we tend to not think of apologetics in terms of Trinitarian covenantal apologetics. Uh, even even folks who think of presuppositional apologetics have something of a skewed view of what a presupposition is. Uh, sometimes people will think of a presupposition as simply a prior commitment. Right. And since everybody has prior commitments, we simply need to talk about each other's prior commitments and get to the bottom of each other's prior commitments, etc. Um, a book like this, I think, is going to elucidate what is the nature of a presupposition, what is the nature of apologetics from a covenantal Trinitarian standpoint. So I'm excited about it. Right. Today we want to expand on this and, and show just how central covenant is to the very nature of uh, presuppositional apologetics in the tradition of Cornelius Van Til, how it's important, how it's central, and how the whole uh, program is founded upon that idea that God relates to us. Uh, Dr. Oliphant, can you provide a little background to this volume? I know uh, one of your close friends has been encouraging you to write this book for a long time. Uh, why now, and uh, how does this book uh, fall out in terms of the landscape with others, such as Reasons of the Heart by Dr. Edgar, or Bonson's Always Ready, uh, or your own book, The Battle Belongs to the Lord? Where does this book fall? Uh, where is it situated? I think it's situated sort of, like you were saying, between uh, the book Battle Belongs to the Lord and Reasons for Faith. Uh, one of the reasons that I wrote Battle was to try to help uh, people who maybe were completely unfamiliar with apologetics to help them see how it has its uh, grounding and founding in Scripture and what Scripture says. That that point um, is, um, you know, it's, it's more um, pervasive than it has been in the past, but it still is not uh, gained uh, the the uh, you know the audience that it needs to, um, and and I think my recent discussion on uh, the past radio program you mentioned uh, showed something of that, that that apologetics has its ground in scripture and in theology. So what I what and then in reasons for faith, what I'm really doing there is trying to write from a more philosophical um, perspective as to how we might think about philosophy as I say in the subtitle, in the service of theology, uh, rather than vice versa, which is the predominant mode of thinking, uh, even among evangelicals. So this book is meant to be uh, more of a a theological piece that um, emphasizes, in in my view, all of the things that Van Til emphasizes, but does it with terminology that um, is translated from the philosophical into the more theological and biblical so I, I thought, um, you know, this book has been a long time coming. It's been on my list for quite a while, um, and this was this was the the proper time for me to write it, just given everything else that I'd done uh, previously. Yeah, I do appreciate that. I think the book is is rich and and certainly solid theologically, but I did notice very much the accessibility. Uh, but but not at the expense of clarity or or depth. Um, and so I want to commend you on that and also let the listeners know that this book is going to provide a, a thorough foundation to the task of apologetics, while also providing you several examples of how it works out practically, but all in language that's accessible, 
um, and that that you know tries to provide things or, or or communicate things in a in a clear way to people that might not be initiated into all the finer points of uh, reform tr- of the reform tradition. So uh, that's one of the great advantages of this book. Um, one thing you Thank write you. here on page twenty four. I think this sets the stage for the for the entire book. You write the beauty of this approach. And what sets it off from any other apologetic method is that it is naturally and centrally focused on the reality of God's revelation in Christ, including, of course, the good news of the gospel. This might seem odd to people, but um, we can't take that for granted with other apologetic approaches, can we? No, not at all. And that is uh, the thing that initially attracted me to Van Til's approach uh, decades ago when I started reading Van Til. And in my view, this is the only approach that allows for a seamless move from an apologetic argument to uh, into the presentation of the gospel. And, and I, I think, um, you know, we have to be clear that um, for whatever uh, reason, and I think there are a lot of reasons we can discuss, uh, any other apologetic approach is going to have to be satisfied simply with a kind of bare theism. And if you move in another approach, if you move from bare theism— uh, to a presentation of the gospel, you have inevitably shifted your foundation. Now, that doesn't mean it can't be done, but it does mean that, um, you know, a, 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 an unbeliever who's, um, who's uh, self-conscious and who's, who's um, trained to think in this way will see that there, uh, there, there's been a, a game change in that sense, and, and we'll see the inconsistencies. And, and I think what we see in this approach, and Van Til's approach, and the approach that I'm, I'm setting forth in, in my book, which I think is the same approach as Van Til's, um, there, because you begin with um, who God is and what he has said, um, that's going to inevitably lead you to uh, redemption as it's found in Christ. And no other approach does that. I, I think that's, uh, that's not an overstatement. No other approach is able consistently to do that based on that foundation. Who is called to do apologetics, and more basically, what particularly is your understanding of the apologetic task? Good. The, um, the passage in First Peter, um, in my view, and I think you can show this exegetically, I, I actually do this in, in Battle Belongs to the Lord, First um, Peter 3.15, uh, we're called, uh, commanded to uh, set Christ apart as Lord, and in setting him apart, what that means, at least in part, is that we are uh, able and ready to give a defense. Now, that command um, that we have in Scripture is given to the church. It's not given to, um, to academics. It's not given to scholars. Um, academics can do it. Uh, academics ought to do it. Um, hopefully, uh, for me, academics ought to teach it. Um, or I'm without a job, but in 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 the in the main, what Scripture's telling us is that every Christian is commanded and therefore able to give a defense, to give a reason for the hope that is within us, and that means that if God has commanded us to do it, He's given us the resources to do it. So you don't need a PhD in philosophy, you don't need a a PhD in theology, um, you don't need a seminary education in order to defend the Christian faith. What you need is as I say to my students, premeditated evangelism. You need to, to be able to understand the Bible in such a way that you make it, you know how to make it relevant to objections and problems that come our way from unbelief. 
Yeah. Sometimes uh, when I teach on apologetics in the, in a local church setting, people people's eyes light up when you expound upon that particular passage and say, a faithful apologetic could possibly be as minimal as, as somebody asking you, you know, what's the reason for the hope that you have or, or, or what gets you up in the morning? And you say, yeah. well, because Jesus Christ is my Lord. He saved me out of my sin, and I look and, uh, unto him and trust in him for salvation. That's, that's at the bare minimum, you know, a reason for the hope that you have, because Christ exactly. was raised from the dead. Yeah. And people seem almost liberated that a weight's taken off their shoulder um, because they, they come with these conceptions that apologetics involves, you know, really detailed treatment about the historicity of certain biblical manuscripts or, um, you know, different historical cases for the resurrection, which are valuable in and in, in of themselves used rightly, mm-hmm. uh, but but aren't, you know, the... Uh, the appropriate uh, material uh, f- for every single person. Some people just aren't skilled or, or interested to handle those things. Yeah, that's right. And, and the predominant tradition in apologetics has said implicitly, if not explicitly, and in some cases explicitly, that in order to do apologetics, you've got to be an expert in philosophy. Right. And that's the way it's been for the past few hundred years, and that's just not true. If we're commanded to do it, God gives us what we need to do it, and we don't need anything other than the resources God gives us in His in and through His Spirit and in His Word. Mm-hmm. Now, um, why switch to uh, the title Covenantal Apologetics? It's kind of the the you know the, the big question because it's uh, built into the title here of this book. Uh, we're going to get into more of of the role of the doctrine of God here in a minute, but uh, before we do so, why the new title Covenantal Apologetics? Well, it hit me um, a few couple of decades ago, maybe a little more, when I was talking to um, an apologist of another persuasion, a Thomist, actually, and um, we were having just a kind of face-to-face discussion, and it was our first meeting, and um, he uh, asked me what my method, politic method was, and um, I told him I was presuppositional, and he said, well, are you Carnellian, or are you Clarkian, or are you Schaeferian? Um, right. And that that sort of made it. It struck me. It, it it struck me so much that I remember it vividly. Um, that that didn't really do justice to what I had been reading in Van Til. That there were because I'd read Schaefer before I'd read Van Til, and I appreciate Schaefer very much. But there are distinct differences. I just read um, a, a kind of a short book on Carl Henry. Um, in his uh, apologetic and his presuppositional approach, which is similar to what Van Til's doing, as is Schaefer's, um, but Van Til is unique in his own right um, because, in my view, he applies most consistently um, the Reformed faith to the discipline of apologetics. So it began to um, to uh, dawn on me that the, that the term presuppositional was not a good one. Now, you combine with that um, the way the term has been misused, in my view, in a kind of postmodern context, as, as Dave uh, was saying, rightly saying earlier, that, you know, it's just sort of a, a, an idea that you have behind another idea or as I've heard before, um, somebody said Van Til, you know, anticipated all the postmoderns because he said everybody has presuppositions, and that mm-hmm. that relativizes the notion of presupposition. So, so that's not that's not good. Um, that's my second reason. Third reason is uh, Van Til didn't didn't um, attribute the term to himself, but it was kind of put on him and given to him um, some sort of. Um, 
kind of picking in debates as to exactly how that happened. But it certainly <laughs> it certainly happened when Buswell wrote his article um, in in the late forties. Um, you know that the question was was making a presuppositionalist that um, that Bonson and others have talked about, um, and and you can go back and forth on that. My my answer to that question is, of course, he wasn't a presuppositionist. Van Til wasn't one at that point because the term wasn't around. But that but they were both interested and committed to reformed a reform view of apologetics. So the the notion presuppositional. Uh, didn't have um, the connotations that it did when it was was placed on Van Til's position, and and since that time, it's gained a connotation that to me is ambiguous. And not only that, it's a kind of philosophical term that can serve really to to, to put people off. Uh, and so I thought it would be better, and this is the way I've been teaching um, my own classes. It would be better to talk about Van Til's approach as covenantal because central to what he's saying and in, in everything that he articulates is uh, the notion of covenant and thinking about that now specifically as God's relationship to creation and specifically his relationship to man. And if you don't get that piece right, you're not going to get anything else that Van Til says. Now, that that starts with uh, the ontological trinity, but the ontological trinity as condescended. Yes. And so so that's that's why I think the notion of covenant, you know, the more you read Van Til, um, I just finished uh, annotating Van Til's Common Grace in the Gospel um, for PNR, and that's going to be published, I guess, in, in a year or so. And it just struck me again, uh, reading through Common Grace in the Gospel, um, that the, 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 the doctrine of, of covenant is replete through Van Til's writings. And, and, and by covenant, he's not thinking specifically at this point of the covenant of works and covenant of grace, although those are implicated, of course, and important, but he's thinking uh, fundamentally about Confession 7-1. Yeah, that's quite useful, and I want to get into the doctrine of God here, but uh, it should make a comment here for the listener. Um, at least I found this quite helpful in Greg Bonson's book, Presuppositional Apologetics, Stated and Defended. There's a helpful series of chapters toward the end of that book that distinguish Van Til's notion of presupposition from others, uh, such as Schaefer, Clark. Um, I think Buswell might be in there. Is Buswell in there, Dave? Yeah, you know, the ambiguity that Dr. Oliphant is talking about is not, it's not even something that has developed over time with regard to the term presupposition or presuppositionalism. When, uh, when Buswell sort of appended that to to Van Til, he was he was ambiguous himself about it, as as Van Til, you know, pointed out in in uh, in some of their uh, debate back and forth and letters back and forth. Van Til was trying to show how Buswell's own understanding of a presupposition was essentially um, a hypothesis that someone came to the table with that could be right. uh, adjudicated by reason uh, and voted and voted up or down. So it was it was ambiguous. Uh, you know, from from the beginning, and it's it's interesting that um, that the term presuppositionalism, as we know it, uh, was not or that was not the original term. Uh, Buswell said that it was Alan McRae who had given him the term presuppositionism um, as sort of an early way of describing what Van Til was doing, and yeah. so and so it was Buswell though who kind of turned that into presuppositionalism, and mm-hmm. and um, it it stuck. Yeah, that's an interesting history. Maybe Dave, you and I can get around to editing those letters and put this stuff out in the open. Oh, uh, you know where to find me. <laughs> <That'd be great. laughs> There's a whole wealth of interesting things in the Westminster Archive, uh, a whole series of 
well, seven or eight boxes full of letters that Van Til's written and uh, received. So that's one of our uh, rainy day, someday maybe projects, <laughs> getting to that. A lot of fun stuff in there. Uh, one thing uh, that I found quite useful in this first chapter, Always Ready, actually the second one right after the introduction, is a section on the Ten Tenets. Uh, Dr. Alfin, could you explain to the listener what you've done in, in encapsulating uh, these principles here in an accessible format? But um, what what is your hope for these 10 tenets? What I'm trying to do there, um, I was trying to um, envision an audience, and, you know, it's it's difficult to do that. I'm, I'm writing for an audience that's not uh, seminary-educated necessarily, Um and but I did recognize that there are going to be there are going to be a number of people who have read uh, Van Til, perhaps Bonson, uh, Edgar, uh, someone like that, and uh, and then uh, want to pick this book up. And so they're going to be familiar more or less with uh, Van Til's basic thrust and the way that he approaches his apologetic method. And then there are going to be others um, who this is going to be uh, for whom this is going to be brand new or relatively new. So I thought um, in, instead of uh, doubling the size of the book and going through material that's already out there, um, it would be uh, best if I could outline uh, some, some basic premises, basic ideas, basic theological tenets uh, that are going to inform the rest of, of what I do as I move forward in the book. So I, I offer those, again, not as uh, exhaustive. There are more that could be added that could be put in a different order, perhaps, but um I do think there's there would be no question in my mind that those ten tenets have to be included in in Van Til's approach, even if, even if they're more, if they can be divided differently. And and I think if you can get a handle on those, what I try to do in the rest of the book is is show in, in various footnotes and things how those tenets come into play and are incorporated uh, in some of the principles that I'm laying out in in um, in, in further chapters. Yeah, and it could be just a helpful refresher, too, for people that have read some books in the past, but they want to get a handle on exactly what this approach is all about. Um, one further question here, uh, which will lead us into our Doctrine of God section, is what is the relationship of this approach to Reformed confessional theology? Well, um, the... In, in my view, if you are uh, reformed in theology, you necessarily uh, take this approach in apologetics, and if this approach is not taken in apologetics, then there is a problem that is at root theological. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think this, and this, you know, this. See, Van Til didn't make this as clear because he just assumed it, and you can see how he assumes it the more that you read him. He just. There's just no question in his mind that what he's doing, as he as he told me on a number of occasions, he said, I'm just standing on the shoulders of, of Warfield and, and Bavink and Kuiper, and I can see a little bit farther, but I'm I'm just articulating what they've given us. And and so it, what, what what he assumes is that uh, people reading will already be schooled in Reformed theology, and so we'll get the principles. Now, I think, um, you know, in his day, that caused some problems. In our day, it causes more problems. Some people think that what he's doing is just sort of kind of culling together different philosophical ideas and trying to create and invent, you know, a kind of apologetic method. He, that, he had no interest in any of that whatsoever. Um, he was doing apologetics um, uh, for the Church in light of Reformed theology and toward unbelief. And there, there's no way uh, that, that a person can be consistently Reformed 
and take another apologetic approach. It's just not possible. Yeah, I agree. Uh, it's It goes both ways. If you are Reformed, then you ought to be covenantal in your apologetic, because uh, it's just an application of the standards uh, to this particular discipline. You could do that with other disciplines, too. Biblical yep. counseling, for instance, is, is yep. an application of Reformed theology to the... The counselor's task. Um, there's a reformed way to do hermeneutics, uh, biblical right. studies, etc. And Van Til was very clear on that in his theological encyclopedia that he saw what he was trying to do um, and could be replicated and done in all the other disciplines. And that's one of the the power uh, I think of this is that it does stand on God's revelation on Scripture. And it seeks to be thoroughly, uh, rigorously, and uncompromisingly consistent with God's Word uh, and and how um, we ought to do anything we put our hand to do. We should do yeah. it being informed by what God has said. Exactly. And I think it's important just to reiterate that point that, you know, Van Til sometimes is, is seen, um, I, I've heard this a number of different times in different ways, he seemed to be um, almost too creative and kind of a, a you know, an, a, an innovator and, and nobody in, in history had ever done. And I think, you know, you can overstate that to some He did not innovate theologically for the most part. He, he nuanced a few things, common grace and other things like that, but uh, he was not a theological innovator. What, what he was able to do, I think, that, that made him unique is that he synthesized much of what Reformed thought had been teaching all along and brought that into the domain of apologetics, where it had not been uh, placed in any sort of um, consistent and systematic way prior. You see uh, large uh, chunks of hints of this in Bavink, um, but you remember Kuiper was uh, of the mind that apologetics was relatively useless, as Warfield put it, a subdivision of a subdivision in the theological encyclopedia. And Kuiper thought that way because the apologetic that he had available to him was basically Thomistic. Yeah. So if, that, if, mm-hmm. that, if that's all you've got, you know, I'd put it in the third volume of, of, of what I wrote, too, just like Kuiper did. <laughs> but that was, that was one of the places where Kuiper, one of the few places where, where Kuiper, you know, didn't synthesize. Van Til had the genius to do that. And so he brought together Bob Inc. and what he learned at Princeton from from uh, uh, Machen and others, and, and brought all that together and, into the domain of apologetics, and that's what makes him unique. Wow. Yeah. So why is uh, the doctrine of God here, particularly the uh, doctrine of the Trinity, the ontological Trinity, why is that so central to this apologetic? And why, why are they inextricably linked, such that you, if you don't have this Reformed, uh, we would say, you know, biblical doctrine of the Trinity, that this apologetic will not work? The, you know, the, the easy short answer is because it's true. Right. Um, the if you if you if you don't begin your discussion in any context with anybody, if you don't begin with what is true, then your only option is you're beginning with something false. And if you're beginning with something false, you have to move from something false to something true, and then you have to find a bridge between the two. And the problem is there really isn't one. So part of what Van Til is saying is because I begin with Holy Scripture in my defense of Christianity, I must begin where the Bible begins, and the Bible begins in the beginning God, and in the beginning the triune God, not not some generic God, not some God whose attributes we don't know, not some connotation without denotation. This is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and you have to begin there. And then what Van Til did in, in his genius 
and this is more the philosophical side, but, but he began to show and work out and argue uh, just why it is the case uh, that apart from the triune God, uh, predication itself is meaningless. Uh, you, you can't make a statement and justify the meaning of that statement unless the triune God exists as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Um, unity in diversity, uh, equal ultimacy, and all of these sort of things um, come into his apologetic in a way that is, in, in that sense, uh, ingenious. Now, again, Reformed thought had had thought that way previously. Um, many, many of the Reform, most of the Reform, rejected Thomas's Analogia Entis because of its understanding of Entis, of being itself. Mm. Um, but um, but Van Til saw uh, the necessity of starting with Father, Son, and Holy Spirit because that's where the Bible starts. And if you don't start with that God, by definition, you're starting with some other. Right, and it's yeah. not as if the Trinity is something that's uh, rationally deducible, like uh, like uh, you know we've got the distinction that's traditional in Thomas De Deo Uno and De Deo Trino. Uh, we don't want to think that we can just uh, do natural theology, you know, in our own in our own faculties, in our own power and strength, and deduce the Trinity. But what Doctor Alfin has said, uh, just to connect some dots for the listeners. Is, is a major feature of why this Van Til's apologetic cannot be used by a Muslim or cannot be used by a Jew uh, because they do not have the ontological trinity at the center. It, it cannot be used by bare theism because they do not have, you know, the way Van Til worked it out, the unity and diversity, the equal ultimacy, uh, that, that central uh, foundational point of God in himself, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, is what holds the entire universe together, and and we know this because he has spoken to us. Yeah, that's that's exactly right. And I'll even be a little more controversial. This apologetic cannot be used by an Arminian. Right. Um, Ar- Arminians will use the same kinds of terms, um, oftentimes, to describe certain things. But um, you know, in my my discussion on the, on the radio program previously um, that you referred to. Um, I was I was trying to make that point, and and even though um, the man that I was uh, speaking with and I might have agreed on terminological identity, and conceptually we were speaking in two different languages, um, because in 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 an Arminian uh, context you cannot, will not, do not start with the self-authenticating Word of God. You think that there is some neutral territory that you and the unbeliever stand on, and you begin to, you begin to argue from that point, and then it's, it's impossible conceptually, even though you might do it pragmatically, it's impossible conceptually to jump from that point to the truth of the Word of God. The garden narrative always pops up in Van Til. He's always talking about <laughs> Adam and Eve in the garden for various yeah. reasons. Why, why is that? Right. Why is that so central here? Well, because it shows us so clearly um, so much about the nature of sin and, and the nature of temptations that um, that even Christians uh, oftentimes uh, succumb to. When you know, there, there's a reason why Moses says, uh, "Now the serpent was more subtle." You know, it begins at Genesis three that way, uh, not just as a sort of throwaway line, but so that you you now have your eyes and ears perked up for the subtlety. And the subtlety comes immediately when the serpent comes in and, and, and begins to, to, to ask the question, has God said? And, and by asking that question, you see, he's forcing an answer uh, from Eve so that she can begin to negotiate then the word of God. And as we see, as the narrative moves on, then Eve begins to think herself 
that she's able to judge whether or not what God has said is true or not. And that is the nature of sin. So when, when Paul t- uh, talks about that, you know, mentions it briefly in 2 Corinthians 11, he, he talks about Eve's deception. That deception is the, the deception of Satan, but it's also her own self-deception that she thinks that she can negotiate the truth of God rather than stand on it and rest on it. And, you know, as, as we say, uh, the rest is history, and it's, and it's mm-hmm. horrible history because that is the fall. And, and so the, the fall is... A, a subtle um, undermining, a questioning of the truth of what God has said, which attaches to us in a particular way. And so that, that um, you know, that germ of autonomy that is uh, kind of the nugget of sin can easily grow into a full-fledged uh, disease in, in, our, in our hearts and in our minds so that we can, even as Christians, begin to think that there's a measure of autonomy with us. And, and that really, frankly, since I'm being controversial, that's what Arminian theology is. There has to be a measure of autonomy in man such that God is dependent on what man will do in order for him to do or to know anything. And, and you, can't, you can't escape that uh, by simply flying the Molinist flag and saying, no, no, it's all in eternity and God knew all this. The only way he knew it is because he knew what we would freely do. And that makes God a dependent being rather than the Asa God of Scripture. Further, you know, buttressing the fact that a covenantal apologetic really can't be done by an Arminian because it's not just the way we approach Scripture or the ontological trinity, etc. It really is about a Reformed anthropology as well that's so consistent with a covenantal apologetic. Absolutely right. Yeah, yeah. It it has to do with a Reformed approach to all the theological low side. Uh, all of it, yeah, yeah. The whole yeah, that's a, that's a great point, Dave. Um, could you, uh, Dr. Alfin, can you speak about uh, God as I am? Uh, one of one of my favorite sections in your Doctrine of God class was your treatment of Exodus chapter 3. And you bring the I am into this chapter here, set Christ apart as Lord. You've already touched upon this, and you presupposed this, pardon the pun, but um, you've presupposed this uh, in what you've said in, in terms of Eve's disobedience. But why is this uh, notion of God's I am-ness, uh, his, his aseity, his independence, and hence his lordship. Uh, why is that so central here to the way that we approach apologetics? It's, uh, it's central because, again, we have to affirm God as independent from creation, essentially. That is, um, as Paul said to the philosophers at Athens, uh, God is, doesn't dwell in, in temples made by human hands as though he needed anything. God is not in need of anything, essentially, and we need to understand that because that's what Scripture begins with. In the beginning, God. Now, if God is in the beginning, then there is nothing in the beginning except God. And so if there is nothing in the beginning except God, then God isn't dependent on anything except himself. He is a self-dependent being. And if we don't see that in, in terms of who God is, then we, then we miss the whole of redemptive history. We miss the whole of what, it, what the creator-creature distinction is. We begin to blend together um, who the creature is and who the creator is. You know, Van Til is famous for his two circles, um, one larger one uh, above the smaller one linked by uh, two vertical lines. And that larger one uh, in no way uh, overlaps with the smaller one underneath it. There can be no overlap between God and his creation. 
And, and that's why um, the, the Confession 7-1 on covenant starts with the distance between God and the creature is yes. so great. And that's because God is, and God alone is, I am who I am. He is utterly and completely independent. Now, what he's saying to Moses in Exodus 3 is, and fundamentally, it's, he's saying it's covenantally because he's already announced himself as the, as, the, as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But what he's saying to Moses is, I'm not dependent on Pharaoh to accomplish my plan. I'm not dependent on you. I'm not dependent on my people, but I'm a covenant God. And so I'm a covenant God who can do this as God and not as one, a kind of quid pro quo sort of thing where Pharaoh gives me something or, or Moses does this and then I do that. God is essentially and utterly independent. Only in Reformed theology do we have a God of such independence. And so in my view, only in Reformed theology do we attribute to God the glory that's given to him in Scripture. Right. And the beauty of the of this approach, uh, being a Reformed approach, is that God is wholly other, W-H-O-L-L-Y, but yet condescends to us and has a genuine relationship with us and among exactly. us as his people now. So we, we're not lost in uh, the ineffable mystery, as uh, my object of study would like to say. Yeah, and I think if I could just say, Camden, um, you know what what you see in Exodus three in the in the um, miracle of the unburning bush, what you see is uh, God's character as announced in Exodus three. You see that displayed in the unburning bush. So you have the fire, which is symbolic of God, but the fire is not in need of the bush to burn. It doesn't need the fuel of the bush. It's not related to the bush in that way, and yet it is in and with the bush. So as God announces himself as as the father of Moses and Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, he is with them, but at the same time being with them, he doesn't need them in order to be who he is, and that's what that miracle is meant to show us. And even even the title, you know, I am who I am, it's it's almost a self-referential verb. Uh, It's absolutely self-referential, and it is the verb by which then the name Yahweh is formed, Mm -hmm. so that when we think of Yahweh, I've I've told students in my Doctrine of God, I wish there was another way to to translate that in English, or even preferably it ought to be left in the Hebrew, but but Lord doesn't quite cover it, so they put it in all caps, which is okay, but Yahweh is I am. It Mm -hmm. it ought to be uh, I am, I am, every time we seek uh, all caps Lord in our Bibles. That's what Mm -hmm. God is saying. And and it's used over 5,000 times in the Old Testament. So God wanted us to recognize, first of all, that he is I am who I am, and no one else is. Yeah, Mm -hmm. that's Mm -hmm. that's just a central point, and that's that's the main point. (laughs) Everything else in this this book is a footnote and or a working out of that fact. That's right. God is who he is. Mm -hmm. Now, we've spoken about covenant in a general sense, as you mentioned, Westminster Confession of Faith 7-1. Can we speak about it now in terms of uh, more specific covenants, such as the covenant of works? How does uh, this covenantal idea come to inform how we as believers relate to those who do not know Christ? Yeah, let me In just a say way. <laughs> right. Let, let, let me just say if I if I could just um, because I, I didn't I didn't hit the notion of condescension uh, much, uh, Camden. If sure. I could do, do that for one second because it's important. It's important yeah. to what I'm saying, especially. Well, it's important to the entire book, but especially when I get into this mock dialogue with the Muslim. Um, what we understand from Scripture and and our confession says this so well in section one of chapter seven is that that, that God voluntarily condescends. And we recognize that that condescension is a spatial metaphor. It doesn't mean that God 
occupies a place that he didn't otherwise occupy because there's no place that God doesn't occupy. He's repletively present, as we like to say in theology. He's present everywhere. He's omnipresent. Um, so what, what uh, condescension means is that God takes on characteristics while remaining I am who I am. He takes on characteristics in order to relate himself to us and to his creation. Now, those characteristics are given to us in Scripture, and they have uh, various forms and various ways of presenting themselves. But God takes on these characteristics covenantally as he binds himself uh, to creation and, and binds himself fundamentally uh, in, his, in, in the, uh, in the uh, Pactum Salutis. He binds himself, uh, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, to redeem a people for himself and to um, decree uh, whatsoever comes to pass, as our uh, standards say. Now, given that covenantal context that God has condescended and related himself to us, he also appoints representatives for humanity. The first representative is Adam. The second representative is the second Adam, Christ himself. And there are no other representatives in all of creation. And so what this means for us now in, in our place in history is that every person is either covenantally in Adam or covenantally in Christ. Now, that means that there's an antithesis so what you're, it's either one or the other. In Adam, meaning uh, abiding, meant to abide by the covenant of works, which of course brings condemnation. No one can be or is perfectly obedient. Or in Christ, uh, righteous by virtue of what Christ has accomplished. And there's no there's no third place to be. Now that means uh, also. So there's an antithesis, but also this is the point I think we should should not miss. It means that every person made in the image of God is by definition related to God. That is related to the true God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. There's a relationship there. That relationship is characterized biblically either as being under wrath or under grace, in Adam or in Christ. There's no third place. So when we talk about covenantal apologetics, we talk about people, you know, let's just use this, people who are in Christ approaching those who are in Adam to speak to them about their relationship to the true God. That's the way to mm -hmm. think about it, because it's already there. And God has already established that relationship. He's made himself known in that relationship. The person to whom we speak knows the true God. So all of these things God has accomplished, and we're just uh, players who come in uh, by uh, God's design and by what God allows us to do. We come into the situation and proclaim the truth in it. Now, what about Romans chapter 1? This came up with your previous discussion on Unbelievable this idea that all men suppress the truth in unrighteousness, I'll, I'll underscore that, all men suppress the truth <laughs> in unrighteousness. Um, why does that not void the apologetic task? What other aspect of a Reformed theology, particularly Van Til's apologetic, uh, allows for meaningful dialogue between believers and unbelievers, though they occupy opposite ends of this chasm of antithesis? Yeah, the the... The primary uh, point there in terms of uh, what, what I'm talking about in the book in persuasion is that, is that we remain image of God. Now, that can be a kind of abstract uh, theological phrase to some people, but what it means in part, it means more than this, but in part what it means, as Paul's expressing it in Romans 1, is that everybody knows God. That is, God has ensured from, from the beginning of creation, as Paul says in Romans 1.20, God has ensured that every person made in his image will necessarily know him, 
again, as you're underscoring, not some people, um, the exegetical uh, uh, point that Paul is making, the biblical point Paul is making that you can show exegetically is that, as even R.C. Sproul makes this point, it's a universal indictment of sin. It applies to every person from the beginning of, of creation until the end of time. And so what's happening then is people who know God by virtue of what God reveals through creation suppress that truth in unrighteousness. And so it, it, that presupposes that they have the truth. So every person to whom we speak has the truth of who God is and what he requires, even uh, much detail about what he requires, not the kind of detail that you have given, given in God's written word. And you surely don't have uh, the revelation of redemption in Christ revealed through creation. But Paul is saying that there is revelation sufficient so that every person, Romans 120, is on apologetus, which means without a defense or without excuse. That's every single person on the face of, face of the earth. No one will stand before God at judgment and say, I, I didn't know you. That, that is a universal situation that Paul's laying out, and it's clear in, in the way Paul's structuring Romans that he's wanting, first of all, to show that both Jew and Greek are under the same condemnation by virtue of our sin. And then Paul begins to delineate what that means, the differences, and, and how that reaches its climax in our righteousness in Christ in Romans chapter 3. Uh, but we have to reckon with the fact that as in Adam or as in Christ, we remain image. In Christ, that image is being renewed. In Adam, that image is being suppressed. Yeah, there's this meaningful point of contact. I wish there was some fancy German word for that. Well, let's see. How about on Knutfunkspunkt? <laughs> That'll work for a point of contact. Okay. And of course, uh, Common Grace also providing for uh, the opportunity for meaningful interaction and that sinners left to themselves are not as bad as they could be. Uh, right. And I'm looking forward to that Common Grace in the Gospel maybe a year from now from PNR adding to uh, this great series of uh, re republished Van Til works with, yeah, uh, with I great think annotations. I, right. If I could just say, I think aside from Defense of the Faith, I think that's the second thing everybody ought to read of Van Til's is Common yeah. Grace in the Gospel. It's so just, central. It is central. It's absolutely central. And he and the essays basically were written throughout his career, not quite, but he started in the 40s and ended in the 70s. But he was reckoning and dealing with these things from early on and throughout his career. So I just think it's crucial understanding yeah. Van Til, and, and so many people don't get it. Right. That's a great point. Dr. Oliver, this sort of ties in with uh, our previous discussion on the independence of God, and then Camden, as you're talking about the condescension of God, etc., and then Further here, as we've talked about every man being covenantally uh, bound, either you know in the first Adam or in the second Adam, you talk a lot about uh, our knowledge of God being icon knowledge or image knowledge. Could you sort of unpack that a little bit for our listeners? Yeah, thank you. I I am uh, increasingly uncomfortable with the notion of analogical. Um, now, um, and that's the way that Van Til talks about our knowledge. Now, I, I'm not uncomfortable with, with what's behind it. I think Van Til articulates it well and clearly. He got the term from Bovink, and what makes me a little uncomfortable about it is Bovink is too close to Thomas in his mm -hmm. use of the word analogy. Van Til distances himself from Thomas but keeps the term. So it's another terminological change that I think it's better – for us to think about our knowledge as iconic or image knowledge, because image by definition is dependent. That is, you can't have an image unless you have the original. 
Mm-hmm. And if we think of our knowledge as icon, the icon, the Greek for image or image knowledge, then we then we can get rid of you know all of these um, ambiguities on analogy and and reckon with the fact that everything that we know and think and do and are is by definition dependent and never independent. And that that's one way of um, I think highlighting the point that there is nothing autonomous in us, not mm-hmm. our will not our thinking, not our logic, nothing is autonomous. Everything comes from the hand of God, the creator. And God is the I me, he's the I am, that's the Greek word for I am. We are icon, we are image, and everything that we do partakes of that image character. Yeah, and that that underscores the difference between Van Til and Clark on the issue too. We don't have Amy knowledge, but we have true knowledge because it's it's iconic, it's the image, it's covenantal. We exactly. have it because God has given it to us, but we are not God. We don't have exactly. his thoughts, but we think after him on a created level. Right, that's exactly right. Now, how do we bring that knowledge, the knowledge that we have, um, though it's given to us supernaturally through the work of the Holy Spirit, uh, how do we go about speaking to unbelievers? This is where the rubber meets the road, and you start to write about proof to all men. Uh, what? First off, what is this quicksand quotient? You're bringing in a new term here. How does this come <laughs> to influence? I really appreciated this. But what? Yeah. what yeah, spell this out for uh, uh, for some of our listeners. Right. Well, uh, in in Van Til's approach, um, as as many know, and and some will be as familiar with the term, but it's sometimes called transcendental. That's what Van Til's a term he used early on in his syllabus. He dropped it later, but um, kept the concept. And and what transcendental part of what that means is uh, the impossibility of the contrary. Now that can be abstract as well, and so I've tried to say it in 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 um, I hope simpler terms, which means uh, Christianity is true. Anything opposing it is false. Now, there's more to it than that, because then what we want to do, understanding that to be the case, is we want to get at the presuppositions behind, the assumptions behind, the foundation, maybe a better word, the foundation behind what people are saying. Uh, So not just simply what they say, but where they stand, where they think they are standing when they articulate something uh, and so what, what I've what I've tried to show is that if you're not standing on um, the rock of the Word of God itself, then your only other option is you're standing on quicksand. Your your position is sinking. And so so one of the things that we try to show, and I, I try to do this in in the uh, mock dialogues that I set up in the book. One of the things that we try to show is that any position that is not the Christian position is, by definition, sinking of its own weight. Right. Now, that's a di- now, that's a different thing than saying it's sinking because I disagree with it. That's not the point. The point is it sinks of its own weight. There are inherent and internal inconsistencies to the position itself. Not the Christianity, that's a given, but inconsistencies to the position itself, which will not allow it to have a foundation at all, and so it's going to sink of its own weight in that regard. And that's one of the things that we try to show people when we're, uh, you know, as I, try, as I say, when we're deconstructing the position that we're, that we're speaking against. Um, we do want to try to show them that their position is not going to be able to be sustained based on what they themselves say is rational or true or uh, some other um, uh, objective criterion that they try to uh, propose in their position. Mm. 
And that, that brings back to that uh, two-step methodology yeah. that we're finding the quicksand quotient with the other person's position. But you never want to leave them there. It would be horrific. No. And yeah, that's the, the, the beauty of this approach. We never um, apologize in the sense we never say we're sorry uh, for using Scripture, but we never leave people to drown or die in the sand. We always yeah. offer them the hope of the gospel. That's right. That's right, and that's that's a, a monumentally important point. And and we and and again, when we do this two-step approach, it can be merged and synced together sure, so sure. that you're back and forth between them. But we're just trying to describe it here in its simplest uh, simplest modes. Um, but you you never you never just leave people to sink and say, "Boy, I wish you know, wish you had a better place to stand." I'll see you later. But once you know, Schaefer was excellent at this. He would talk about um, taking the roof off and driving people to despair. And you want people to get to that point where they see the frustration of what they're actually doing, which is suppressing the truth and unrighteousness. You want them to see that. You may at times even need to tell them that. I mean, I, I've said before, you don't necessarily start with saying to somebody, you know, you suppress the truth and unrighteousness, and I don't, so let's talk about it. But there may be a point, and oftentimes will be a point, when you can say to them, the reason this is so frustrating is because you are so self-deceived. You know the truth, but you won't admit to it. And then what you want to do is try to show them that the position that they actually want, that is, that is those things that they are wanting in their own system of thought or in their own way of living, in their own ethical ideas, those things that they're wanting can only be had by virtue of Christianity. That is, if those things are, are true in terms of what they want, you know, some kind of morality or in my dialogue with the Muslim, you want some God who is going to relate to you, but you don't have that in, in Muslim theology. Um, so you want to show them that the only way you can have those things is by changing your foundation. You've got to get off the sand and put your feet on the rock. And now that we're on the rock, let's talk about those things that you think you need or you think you want or you think your system has, and let's show how Christianity alone is able to provide those. That's the positive construction after the deconstruction. Now, all of this, see, I think this this is a point, too, that just for some reason has not, not come through to, to so much of the audience out there. What you're doing in each of these steps in the deconstruction and the construction, is you are appealing to what they already know to be the case. You're not speaking to a tabula rasa here. Right. You're not speaking mm-hmm. to a blank slate and just people, oh, I don't know what to do with this. I, I don't have any uh, idea what the, any of this means. Well, the reason this gets through is because God has already gotten through with his truth, and he's doing that perpetually, 24-7, within and without people's existence, that is, on the inside and on the outside. And so what you're saying to them resonates. That doesn't mean they're going to accept it. They'll accept it uh, based on what the Spirit of God sovereignly works. But it resonates with them in their soul. So that when when Paul says in Romans one thirty two that uh, e- even though uh, people know that the righteous requirements of God, see, he says, that the knowledge of God includes the diktioma, it's the Greek word, the righteous requirements, sometimes translated decrees, not a good word to translate, I don't think. Knowing the righteous requirements of God, what do they do then? They not only do the same, they continue to, that is, they continue to work against those righteous requirements, and they approve others who work against those as well. That's the suppression point. But Paul's point is they know these requirements, and yet they suppress the requirements. So when you come to someone, just put it simply and say, not necessarily this way, but when you're saying in your conversation something like, you have sinned against a holy God, 
that resonates with them because God has already made that plain to them. Right. See, So when you're deconstructing their position, you're showing them what suppression leads to, that it leads to utter futility and darkness. And then when you construct according to redemption in Christ, you're showing them what natural revelation doesn't give, that there is atonement, that there is salvation, that there is redemption because of what God has accomplished in Christ to take care of the sin that they already know. You don't have to, I mean, you can, and sometimes you have, you shouldn't have to argue with anyone that they are sinners. Everyone knows. You know, they'll say, I made mistakes. Oh, yeah, no, no, that's perfect. What does that mean, mistakes and perfect? That means there's a standard there. God is a standard. You violated that. And what we're doing in apologetics, as I've said before, it's premeditated evangelism. We're showing people how their system is sinking and how only on the rock of the Word of God himself and itself is there any salvation to be had at all. And then this is so consistent, isn't it, with, you know, Calvin and his use of not just immediate general revelation, but immediate general revelation, cognitio incitia dei, sensus divinitatis, semen religionis, etc. That that shows the consistency of a covenantal apologetic, you know, standing on the shoulders of uh, of Calvin there. Yeah, that's, that's exactly right. And, you know, Calvin structured his institutes on the basis of what Paul was writing in Romans. And so when you match up Calvin's first book of the Institutes with what's going on in Romans 1, you begin to see an exposition, a commentary, a flowering of the theological depth and richness of what Paul is saying, of what God is saying in, in Romans chapter 1, that there, is, uh, there are uh, uh, an almost infinite number of implications that you draw from the fact that every person covenantally is related to God and knows the God to whom they are related. Now that has such massive apologetic implications that mm-hmm. you know you, you you can work with that for the rest of your life. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, everything you've you've illustrated here just goes to show that um, the issue of defending the faith um, and and breaking through to uh, unbelievers is simple on one end, but on the other, there's a lot of uh, dynamic factors and complications here. Two of them are just the nature of proof, because a lot of apologists have uh, odd and, and alternative understandings of what proof means. The other is the element of persuasion. Uh, could you speak uh, in our remaining time here before we? I want to get into these dialogues that you have, but before we do that, just um, can you expand upon the idea of proof and a burden of proof, and then also the importance of persuading, not just simply, you know, delineating a, an airtight argument, but actually persuading somebody? How do those two right. factors, proof and persuasion, come into a covenantal apologetic? Right. Thanks. Yeah, well, I think, um, you know, too often, uh, historically, the the sole subject in apologetics has been proof. Um, How do you prove the existence of God? And, you know, Van Til makes points in various of his writings. We we do not, at one point, I think I'm quoting him exactly, we do not seek to prove God, but rather to show, and then he goes on to talk about uh, what we try to show transcendentally, uh, now he's, he's um, you know, he's juxtaposing there the notion of proof with showing, and he has a very specific idea in mind with what a proof is. And if we think about proof generally, um, what, what, we're, what we have to reckon with is that any proof, let's just take a basic syllogism, any proof, um, uh, all men are mortal, Socrates is a man, uh, therefore Socrates is mortal. 
All right, there's a basic syllogism, a basic Aristotelian syllogism, and what you have is two premises and a conclusion. Now, whenever you're dealing with a proof like that, um, you, you have um, a, a possible validity and you have possible soundness. Uh, a valid proof um, is, is a proof in, in which, um, if the premises are true, the conclusion necessarily follows. But it says nothing about the truth of the premises. So maybe all you want is to show the validity of a proof. But even if you show that, you haven't even gotten to the question of truth. Why not? Because there's no basic agreement on whether or not the premises are true. So is this premise true? All men are mortal. I ask my class that question. It's always fun to get different answers to that. Is it true that all men are mortal? You, know, you sit there for a while and you think about, well, uh, yeah, no, well, yeah, no. Okay, and that's part of what you're meant to do. Of course, it's not true, but you wouldn't necessarily want to argue with that in, in, if someone is offering something like that because you're dealing with a kind of empirical verification at that point. But the point is there's always something surrounding proofs to which truth must be given its due. See, so you, you have to reckon with the notion of truth. And so proofs don't ever stand isolated in and of themselves, and they have to to have, by, by uh, definition, have to have assumptions, foundations, presuppositions behind them. So if we think about proof in that way, then what I think it's better to do is to offer what, we, what I try to call persuasive arguments. Now, persuasive argument is an argument in which the truth that we proclaim, the truth that we argue, the truth that we say resonates with the truth that God has already given in the person to whom we speak. That is, the bridge is built already by God himself, and it's our task to walk across that bridge and then to walk the person back with us so that we can begin to talk about the truth in specific ways and not just talk about proofs as if they hang in the air. So even um, I was interested in this when I, I remember first reading this, when Muller's talking about the way the Reformed handled many of the Thomistic proofs, he said they, they uh, handled them not as demonstrative devices, but as rhetorical in the sense that they were meant to be uh, things that you could say and could offer in the face of atheism or skepticism or something like that, but as rhetorical devices and not as demonstrative. Why mm -hmm. not? Because if they're going to be demonstrative, you have to be standing on the same foundation, and by definition, we're not. Wow. So in that mm -hmm. sense, proofs aren't the way to go. Wow. Mm -hmm. That's 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 a big point. I appreciate that. That's that really illustrates the issues that we've been discussing here. Um, one of one of the other really significant uh, points in this book, and one of the great values of it, are, are these dialogues that you include, and they're not just entirely invented, but you've modified actual <laughs> discourses that uh, different apologists have had with. Um, different unbelievers. Um, can you explain just uh, your activity in, in providing for the reader uh, this uh, example of how a covenantal apologetic works out? You know, he, until now, we really haven't had many tangible examples of a Vantillian apologetic. If people have been able to find a copy of the great debate uh, between Greg Bonson and Gordon Stein online, that's increasingly difficult to find. And then I think John Frame includes a, a very brief exchange with an unbeliever in his book. I believe it's Apologetics to the Glory of God. I might be mistaken. Right, right. But other than that, there there's hardly any just practical examples of how this apologetic works 
out uh, with a di- with a discussion with an unbeliever. Uh, can you explain your your desire to provide that and how you went about providing these very very helpful exchanges between a covenantal apologist and an opponent? Right. Your your explanation is a good one, I, and I think it's the one that that really has motivated me in this. I, I've heard it numerous times. It may be the chief uh, thing I've heard when it comes to Van Til's approach is that you guys talk endlessly about principles and principles, and you never. You never give us any practice. And, and my, my response, which I still uh, stand by, is um, that the problem with giving practice is that it might appear that there's only one way to do it, or that this is the only way you would address this particular question, when as a matter of fact, the way you're going to address it is going to depend on the person, it's going to depend on the moment, it's going to depend on the, the, what the person holds to, the worldview you're dealing with, all these kinds of person-relative um, notions that, that have to be there. And frankly, this is what makes Van Til's approach um, daunting to some people, is that you don't really have, you know, the four spiritual laws of apologetics so that you can just memorize four things or memorize the five Thomistic proofs and then just launch into causality and contingency and, and teleology and those sorts of things. But instead, your approach is going to be person-relative in the sense that you're going to have to um, ferret out the assumptions and foundations of the person that you're dealing with. Now, um, so given that caveat that, that there's no one way to do it or no two ways to do it or three ways to do it, mm-hmm. on the other hand, um, I, I felt the pressure, and I see that the, um, the point that people make when they say, you know, you, you, don't, you don't give us anything. You know, t- tell us how this might work. So I decided in, in this book that one of the things that I was going to set out to doing is the most challenging thing for me, actually, to do, because I, I hadn't done it anywhere, um, was to, to just work through um, some of the, the uh, um, points of um, articulation out there of unbelief and see how uh, a Vantillian might respond to this. Now, I try to make the point in the book, this is one possible response, not the only response. So there are different ways a dialogue can go, and that's why these are mock dialogues. But I did, I did, th- I did it three ways, uh, more than that. But um, basically, I was, one thing I was wanting to do was um, show how might you use an argument from causality say, the, the second uh, way of Thomas, how might you use that as a Vantillian? Is it just irrelevant? Would you just never use it? Would you never talk about it? And I try to say, well, you know, I, maybe people aren't struggling over the issue of causality, or maybe it hasn't come to someone's mind. But if you, if you are involved in something like that, certainly we don't want to disagree that everything that comes to be as a cause, that's, that's absolutely self-evident. But how do you begin to argue that point from a Vantillian standpoint? So I wanted to do that. Um, and tried to, I actually used an actual dialogue from uh, uh, an apologist who himself is Arminian, so he's consistent with his theology and the way that he's working. Um, no criticism on the apologetic method, much criticism on the theology, but um, he's consistent with his theology. And I tried to take that and say, okay, how would this look from a Ventilian perspective? The other thing I wanted to do that is important to me that I've done in virtually everything I've written is to work with the problem of evil. Um, I don't think we've done a good job um, as Vantillians, particularly in addressing that particular problem in a Vantillian way. So I I wanted to try to approach that problem because I think it is the most uh, intractable problem of of all of us. And and so I I tried to do that. And then one that had never been done, the question that I get maybe most often in my class is, what about other religions? They, Mm -hmm. They have their word of God, too. They can say, I stand on the word of God, and I 
I presuppose God's word, the existence of God, and I want to say, okay, fine, then let's talk about that presupposition and, and begin to work that out. So I try to approach it from those three angles. Yeah, that's that's helpful. And I think reading and rereading these exchanges in this book, we're going to provide uh, just a helpful example and I think make some connections for some people that might not be able readily to uh, connect the, the principles to the practice on their own. And right. uh, and that's where I think this book is is going to have its enduring influence. Uh, not that the principles aren't, aren't important, but they absolutely are. And compiling them and providing them in this one volume is incredibly useful. But this, but this particular aspect to the book, I think, is its its exceptional value. I do uh, want to also mention uh, just the work of James White. I don't want to discount his work and uh, the many great debates that he's had as well. For people that might want to see some of this form of apologetics in action. Um, but also, this might be a little bit of a surprise to people, and I mentioned earlier biblical counseling. But this just goes to show there's no one way to do Vantillian apologetics, and in fact, uh, what David Pallison does in his biblical uh, counseling approach is really a Vantillian project. He would say that himself, um, that he's really trying to approach the task of counseling uh, from the same trajectory. And we that might be a little bit easier for people to understand that if you're in a counseling scenario, there's no one way to help somebody uh, through the Word of God. There's no one way to counsel someone that, that might be the right way as opposed to the wrong. There's a right approach, but that might work itself out in a whole number of different uh, avenues, depending on the context, depending on the person's particular issues. In the same way, what we find here in apologetics is that there's a right approach that's faithful to Scripture. Uh, but that, as, an, as a covenantal apologi- apologist, you have the freedom to go wherever the conversation and wherever the need takes you. Exactly. Um, and that's, I think, the real power of a covenantal apologetic. I'm so excited about the book, and I, I'm with you. I think those mock dialogues are going to um, make it so appealing to folks. But I think also just the the way that certain things are articulated with regard to the principial, you know, the idea of a covenantal apologetic um, us thinking in terms of a covenantal apologetic as opposed to presupposition because of the ambiguity of or the way that people use presupposition in so very uh, many ways. Now, I, I think I think the, the, the principal section here uh, is going to be very accessible to people uh, and is going to make increase their confidence along with those mock dialogues of being able to actually engage in covenantal apologetics. I'm, I'm excited, so excited about the book. Great. Well, I want, I want one of you pastors to, to use this in Sunday school and then report back to me and see if it was accessible. I, I had my wife read it, so you know, I, we and I did that on purpose. And she said, you know, if it gets by me, then it ought to be accessible. So I'd love to I'd love to test that out at some point. Well, I don't know if the elephant household is a good test case. It's <laughs> <laughs> kind of a controlled environment there. Yeah, we don't know. I'll run it by Diane and see what she thinks. Yeah, and I absolutely uh, am thinking about using this um, in a in a in a series uh, soon. So we'll see we'll see how that goes. I'd love yeah. to report back to you. But uh, Dr. Alfin, I want to thank you so much for joining us. We appreciate every time that you're on the program. Um, we'll include links to to some of our other discussions we've had in the past. But thanks so much for your work, uh, your faithfulness to Scripture, um, your determination to be faithful to it, and to communicate to that that to uh, a wide audience. We appreciate your time this morning. Thank you, and thanks to you guys for your ministry of the Word week after week. You guys are doing the frontline work, and uh, we at the seminary uh, very much 
uh, admire and appreciate what you guys are doing. Well, thank you. We do want to point people back to our website at reformedforum.org. There you'll find a wealth of resources on various issues and topics related to Reformed theology. Uh, got a lot of great things coming up. Uh, we've got some help now on the back end. Uh, where we've we've uh, brought on a, an editor, uh, a contract editor, who's going to help us do a lot of the back-end work. Uh, with that in mind, uh, we've got a lot of things coming up. And again, visit us online at reformedforum.org slash donate so that we can uh, support our editor <laughs> and also uh, continue to do all the things that we love doing. Uh, if you want to get a hold of us, you can email us at mail at reformedforum.org. You can also tweet us at reformedforum. We want to thank everybody for listening. We hope you join us again next time on Christ the Center.